One Emotional Podcast. Conversations for inspiration on the go. We offer on the go inspiration because our whole heart is set on beauty and our best bets are set on art. For everybody listening to us today, I would like to introduce this amazing woman. Alexa, she's a consultant, an investor, and facilitator focused on the climate and environmental crisis. She's up to date with everything that's happening around the world regarding these topics. She leads workshops and learning journeys, and these are based upon deep ecology principles, regenerative le leadership, and cultivating ecological literacy in, the sh in decision makers. These are focused for you know leaders around the world. She's an associate at Leaders Quest. This is an international organization that develops quests and learning programs for top executives and family offices. She's the founder of Ground Effect. This is an animist investment vehicle. She's an author, poet, photographer, and wilderness guide. And she designs experiences that bring stakeholders into direct contact with the living world. And she also has this consultancy career. She's, founding, she's the founding member of Terra Habitus. This is a Mexican environmental fund that operates large landscape conservation and watershed restoration projects. She's also a founding member of the Mare Nostrum Ocean Plastics Initiative and a board member of the Ecological Accounting Firm Global Footprint Network. So wow, Alexa, you have this background that sustains all of your work that you're doing right now um, around the world uh, regarding this ecological crisis. Thank you so much and welcome to this podcast. Wow, thank you. It's always really interesting to hear your own bio and someone else's words and enthusiasm. <laughs> Um, I'm so grateful to be here. And when you and I were speaking about um, what we could talk about today, I suggested to you, and you said it might be a good idea to start with um, a sort of poem to set the tone mm. for our conversation. And bless him, uh, this comes from the Plum Village, Deep Not Hands Teachings. And it's about a concept called interbeing. And I think that across all of the different activities that I engage in and the way that I honestly just try and show up in the world, uh, this concept of interbeing is is at the core of it. So with your permission, I'd love just to um, read, read this for you and, and for the listeners. I'm holding a piece of paper. Mm, nice. And the poem goes, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for this paper to exist. But we can say that the cloud and the paper are interbeing. And if we look into the sheet of paper even more closely, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill. We can see the wheat because the logger cannot exist without his bread. And we can see the logger's father and the mother in it too. When we look at it in this way, all of these things, without them, the sheet of paper cannot exist. And looking even more closely, we can see that we are in it too. When we look at this sheet of paper, It is part of our perception. And so you cannot point to one thing that is not here. Time, space, earth, rain, minerals in the soil, sunshine, the cloud, the river, the heat. Everything coexists with a sheet of paper. You cannot be by yourself alone. 
you have to interbe with every other thing. This sheet of paper is because everything else is. And as thin as this sheet of paper is, it contains everything in the universe in it. Mm, beautiful. I love that. And it's all of the characteristics and possibilities and beings that are in any specific thing that we have. It could be our phone, it could be our headphones, it could be the water, it could be the food, right? The other day I was in this workshop and they were talking about eating your prana energy and if you eat, you know, fruits and vegetables, you're eating part of the sun and you're eating that, that you know, nutritious energy. And it was kind of like just realizing the depth and the interconnectedness that every thing that we do has right like that impact that it has instead of just kind of like looking at it superficially that sometimes we tend to look at it like every day i love this phone this philosophy is is at the core of what ecological literacy is you know it can sound like a very kind of i don't know like trendy phrase mm. but essentially what is ecological literacy it means looking at an ecology looking at the living world and being able to read it and understand it and a massive part of that is you see these things but those 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 nouns exist because of relationships and and the verb of them all being together the actions of them living together and so that ability to perceive life as being in dynamic flux and everything being contained within itself and to go out into the land with curiosity with scientific knowledge with intuitive knowledge and really sensing it that is a massive part of my life life path in bringing that to other people and that's what i really call ecological literacy and in a way it's it gives you a sense of belonging to the earth mm. because you know if you belong to this piece of paper you belong to everything around you and i think that more than anything you know we speak about crises in this time and age that's what we long for the most just to belong and not just to a human community to a much wider community of beings on earth mm. So, so I'll pause there, but I think that this kind of interbeing aspect is a deep part of how we start to heal and understand nature and our ecologies. Of course, and complementing a little bit of that, I think it's belonging and connection, right? And the connection that we have to uh, our living world, that we interact with it every single day of our lives, right? We are at some point in touch with some part of nature, and that could be either um, the sun or like the leaves, you know, standing right outside our window with the food that we eat. And something that surprises me is that we are incredibly connected, right, to ecology in our kind of like human design. And funny enough, the designs that we've made for the cities, for example, or the designs that we've made for architecture or interiors or the designs that we've made in our lifestyle, right, they are kind of like completely uh, differentiated and like falling away or like falling apart from ecology, right? Sometimes I wonder like, why aren't we actually designing more, um, you know, public, green public spaces inside cities or why interiors sometimes they don't include plants or, you know, different, you know, natural elements inside the home for us to connect with them. And it's funny because if we have this wisdom lying underneath us and there seems to be some disconnect with it. Funny enough, we're yearning for that connection. I, I agree entirely. One of my favorite writers, David Abram, who I, I recommend you reading some of his books, um, he speaks, he, he wrote something which I thought was so true. And I read it, I'm like, of course, you know, we were used to living 
in a way that everything in the land spoke to us. Our language is mm. used to reflect that phonetically. We, the word for the bird would be how it sounds when it sings, or the word for the stream of the river would be a particular sound that that part of the river would make. Um, so the landscape is, continues to be, but was in our perception, alive and dynamic and in conversation with us. And now what do we have? We have these things in conversation with us, our phones, speaking to us, talking to us, responding to us. But it's not a planet responding to us. It's a human-made creation in our image speaking back to us. And we long for that larger body, which is our Earth body, to be the form of communication that we have with life. You know, the soils, the rivers, etc. So how to create a built environment that is in kind of organic um, receptivity to our bodies and vice versa, I think is critical because we, we, we do forget even if it's very easy when you're back in a place of natural um, expression to actually remember, oh, there's all these other ways of, of speaking. And if, if I may, that actually brings me to animism. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you, when you spoke about ground effect and, and you know, it's called an animist investment vehicle. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky to define animism. It's, it's, um, takes different shapes and forms and it, it's just like nature. It's a, a constantly evolving definition. But the way that I understand animism is the understanding that everything is alive. Everything has some kind of life force, some kind of consciousness or sentience, even if it is incredibly different from our human way of knowing. And when you look at an ecology, for me, an ecology is that web of relationships. Mm -hmm. Animism is the felt sense in you that those relationships exist. It's a feeling mm. and it's an actual practice of relating and connecting. So it's mm. not a noun, it's a, it's a verb. Mm. And so when, when I speak about animism, it's a way of, it's a philosophy and a worldview and a belief system that our ancestors had for thousands of years of knowing that the earth is alive. Mm, totally. And can you give us an example about what would it mean kind of like living uh, every day with animism? For example, like when you sit at, at your table, your table is alive as well and has, you know, these sentient characteristics or maybe the fork that you're eating or the water that you're drinking, right? the roof that you have? That's such a good question. Well, I think it's part of it is seeing everything in a state of transformation. So knowing that this wooden table that I'm speaking to you on today is a tree, will continue to be a tree, will go into the soil and make new life. I think it's seeing those flows. And sometimes these concepts can be so lofty, right? And they can be so sort of such a hyper object they could be so meta that i like to ground them in in place and in our like physical bodies right now you and me and in the place we belong to mm -hmm. and so through our bodies and through our local home we can connect to that whole i think in a much in a much more natural way um and so when you speak about daily practices of animism uh before this call i sent you, i sent you some questions right mm -hmm. and for me those questions are ways of relating to animism so for example i i think i asked you you know do you know what phase the moon is in right now and you know you're welcome to tell me do you know what phase the moon is in right now 
Is it like a little quarter cup full? Is it half full? Full moon? I saw it a few days ago and it was like, you know, like really tiny, um, you know, half moon. And it was like two days ago. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like this kind of like nail, you know? Sometimes I see it like a nail because it's only kind of like this small strip. And that was like two days ago. I saw it with my kids. And so knowing what phase the moon is is, is a form of that relating that you asked mm. about because it's knowing how the tides are responding, the trees, the flowers, they're all responding to the moon. Mm. Or you mentioned the water that comes out of your tap. Mm. I remember when I first did one of these kinds of naturalist courses and, and the professor asked, do you know where your water comes from? The watershed, like the actual cuenca. Mm. And I was like, you know what? For all of my like environmentalists, like I have no clue where my water comes from. And I went and I found it and I went to the reservoir that the water that comes out of my tap comes from. And I tell you, every time I take a shower, brush my teeth, that transformed it. Mm -hmm. Or something else, during lockdown, I was living in the forest in Northern California, and so I turned away from the human world, and I was like, well, the sort of homo sapiens world. Mm -hmm. um, I started learning all of the names of the plants and the trees and the creatures that lived in, in the sort of natural park that was behind my home. Mm. And once I knew their names the next year, I, I knew which ones budded at which time of year. And so there, there's, a, there's a few more of these questions which are just like, are you noticing the world that's right here, right outside? And then once you start to notice it, those creatures, those animals, those organisms start to bring you little lessons and clues. And then it becomes incredibly fun, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is something we'll probably talk about later, but when we speak about like climate catastrophe and disaster, I think it's really important to also know that we can have so much delight and so much joy and so much pleasure in this act of coming home. Of course. It doesn't have to be fatalistic. Like knowing where my water came from, knowing the names of the plants that grew, bringing them home and making like falafels from them. <laughs> that truly grounds me when I then deal with the other things that can be quite hard sometimes. Of course. And something that can impact us every day with animism, for example, understanding what you just said is like the weather, right? The importance that the weather has on our emotional state. No? You've lived, you're living between Mexico and Europe and you've lived, you know, most of the pandemic over in North, in North California, no? And for me, I've been living either in Mexico City, New York, uh, Canada or different places. And I remember when I was living in Canada, I remember the, those six months of, you know, intense uh, winter, not that it was, you know, complete dark at 3 p.m. Of course, it has an impact on your well-being. And now living in Mexico that most of the times you have kind of like these, um, weather with not that marked you know the uh, seasons of the year but it also has an impact right when it's a little bit more chilly when it starts to rain in mexico rains a lot no and um and i think it does kind of like impact um, either when you're trying kind of like when you're having projects that are more about hibernating, for example, when you're cooking with this creativity and this curiosity, these new projects, uh, sometimes it can be on the colder months, right? And when they start to blossom, they could be over on the spring, right? And we are connected all the time with those seasons. And for example, where I live, I have two trees that I completely love. One is called the flamboyant, no? which is like red, 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 red. And every time that it blooms, it's kind of like, 
it makes it makes the whole town happy you know <laughs> like you know bursting with like this orangey reddish color you no know? it, it kind of like communicates you that the that the tree is thriving and like the whole kind of like ecology system is thriving just by seeing that tree and another one is the floripondio i don't know the exact name in english but the floripondio is this kind of like exotic uh you know flower that goes you know um, upside down and it's aesthetically it's beautiful and the floripondis over here just kind of like i was like they are everywhere either in the um in the wetter areas or the hotter areas but the floripondi is kind of like something really strong from this area and it also communicates me many things kind of like you know the, the the essence and the elegance and the sophistication and the sexiness that a plant can have because no at the end the flowers any kind of flower they are the sexual uh, reproductive organs of the plant so it, it's also kind of like funny to also communicate in that sense with our environment. Yeah, the flower pond is, I mean, you know, it's a psychedelic plant, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. um, which and its shape is very interesting in that sense. And even when you learn the different ways and tinctures and herbs makes herbs that you can make from plants, like one of the first suggestions when people ask me, okay, but where do I start? Like, how do I start connecting to the land around me? I'm like, get a naturalist book learn the names and the herbs and how you can make things from them because mm. there's nothing more profound than knowing a land by tasting it and smelling it mm. and the second one is know the myths of the land so in mexico you have so many myths about the floripondio tree because of its psychoactive properties obviously mm -hmm. and again once you start moving through the land and it's no no longer just a forest it's like a land peopled with stories mm. so all of these old myths laid upon each other and then you start to make your own stories because myths are not static oral storytelling cultures constantly evolve their myths and um and i also think what's interesting about seasons and, and that's very accurate what you said um and it's obvious but in the west i believe that we're constantly in summer doing doing making achieving and the idea that we can go and compost and transmute and harvest, which is autumn, is quite foreign sometimes. And then obviously, as you said, winter is the most scary time. It's like, wait, I, I have to be alone and take time for myself and things have to die in me and, and pause. The process of death and decay, whether it's just on a very human social level or even in a, the way that we've, we've learned to manage landscapes or as if forgotten to manage landscapes, there's no place for death and decay. When you look at the forestry in Canada, any dead old growth or any hollow cedar tree is considered decadent and wasteful, literally forestry words, and they're removed from the forest. Because why should we have dead things there? Not knowing that in that dead nurse log, all of the new forms of life are already taking shape. Of course, you have more new mushrooms, or you have, you know, um, kind of the shelter for animals, and not many other natural properties and you know functions. <laughs> and the Japanese, they have well in one of the Japanese um, provinces, because I'm sure that there's more. They have 72 micro seasons. Mm. In the provinces and so you know it's a micro season of the first lily bud blooming or when the ice melts when the geese start to come overhead and so they've actually identified not just our you know four seasons um but 72 seasons within seasons and so another really beautiful thing for people to do is to start noting the micro seasons around your home every month mm -hmm. i mean whenever you notice something and then compare it with the next year and then the next year and you start to celebrate these little occurrences where things are happening in the land and you can do this in cities, as you well know, because 
things bloom in cities too and creatures do move through cities of course yeah and I wonder if these uh, 72 micro seasons actually are changing or are having an impact with climate change do you know I think everything can become just a lot more erratic mm -hmm. right um, natural fires become mega fires droughts become mega droughts so entirely so and interestingly new species emerge with climate change right like niches are you know species are made extinct new niches mm -hmm. are created and made mm -hmm. and it's very interesting to see the movements of different plants and species moving as our climate shifts mm -hmm. so yeah that constant um state of flux and change is, is incredibly relevant incredibly relevant and i would like to address something about climate change now we know that it's the most important you know it's it's the most you know pressing issue for humanity and especially for our generation right for the people that are you know being born these days and for us that we're in our 30s and for you know even you know people that are in their 50s now we know that it's the most important topic and something that you know um, for example every every one session that we've done about climate change uh, normally we have kind of like a specific number of people that show up to the sessions right and when we talk about climate crisis we have less people and we ask them like you know why is it and they're like no it's because it's because i go into the session and and you know i feel anxious about the reality and the things that people are commenting because we know it's true and because we have or, or we feel we have like like almost none um possibility of action because we sense that they that everything is like way too big for us right so i wanted to, to talk in this podcast about the positive and useful way of talking about climate change what is the role for example of the arts in this about poetry about beauty about maybe magic or myth you know what 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 how can we relate this these beautiful arts right and these aesthetic you know emotions that have to do with them in a positive way with a climate crisis yeah, this question is is so ridiculously important, and I think that our society at large is not at all equipped for what's to come, and I think that we are going to need thousands um, more climate coaches and people for children, parents, adults, all ages, to kind of hospice us through the process that we're about to encounter. Um, I think there's a few different lenses that are, that are very helpful. Um, the first is what we've been speaking about. Start with the body, right? Start with just anchoring into your body, understanding nature through your system and having a conversation with a more than human world. This climate crisis or not is essential and it's truly, truly missing in our time. And through having that dialogue, through having that relationship, I don't want to be prescriptive, but I know for myself and people I've worked with, it will become a lot easier to navigate these challenges and changes. One, you might see nature's potential of regeneration. Mm -hmm. Two, because these little moments of delight throughout your day can help you see, okay, yes, like there is a meta crisis happening, but I also right here, right now, and I'm experiencing joy and that's fine. Mm -hmm. You can live inside these dualities, like nothing is black and white. So my first advice is, know your ecology, live in your place, commit to being present somewhere. Don't be super transient because that rootedness, Simone Weil has a beautiful phrase and she said it's, it goes along the lines of rootedness in, rootedness in place 
is one of the most um, un, unrequited desires of the soul or unmet needs of the soul. So the first, the first piece of advice is just start doing things. And by doing that, you become part of a larger narrative, deep time, right? Not everything will transform overnight. These crises we're facing have taken thousands of years to be what they are today. You can look at the birth of agricultural way through to the 1600s and capitalism, you know, put your pin or 150 years industrial revolution. But deep time is the way that nature works and the way that our planet works. And when you spend time in a mountain in solitude or when you camp under the stars and you look at deep space, you say, okay, there is another timeline here and another horizon that I will not fully know as a human being. And so I'll do my part. And I think that that can give a lot of peace. Um, there's a very useful framework that I've used called active hope. Um, and they bring you through these five different processes. The first is coming from gratitude. So again, it touches on what we've spoken about. Just start, and you can do this with a group, right? Start with what am I grateful for today? In my life, in the world, and what I know, and what I'm eating, and whatever it may be, starting with gratitude. The second part is truly honoring the pain. Like the pain is there, we can't skip over it. Our society, as much as I think we're going to try to, we're not going to be able to skip over a lot of the trauma and the pain. Mm -hmm. Like things have to be composted and mulched and kind of like stirred around before they become, before they take their new form. So honoring the pain, and that's grief work. Um, and that grief work is real. You really can't skip over it. And uh, Martin Pretschel, who's also an, an incredible writer and myth teller, and he has this phrase that um, grief is praise. Right. And grief is actually our love honoring what it cares about. And the deeper that we feel and the more sadness and pain that we feel, the more that we can be filled with love and the more that we isolate ourselves. And probably the more, the more that we have that is because we have that love in the first place. Mm -hmm. The depth of my love is the depth of my care. And when you notice that actually I'm, I'm so sad because I love this so much, that's really beautiful, even in the sadness and the pain. And that can be the same in any life transition. So coming from gratitude, doing the grief work, and we can talk about different grief methodologies. And then there's seeing with new eyes. Okay, what can I see or perceive that I didn't see before? And you can do that through movement, dance, art, somatics, uh, reading, like myth. Like, how can I ground myself with, in, in new eyes in this moment in time? Myth also gives you deep time. Because you realize human lives the we live the same stories time and time again. And then seeing from hopes. So that's very practical. What do we as a group of people have hope for? How can we work towards this very practically? And then harvest. And start again. And and that is a way of, I believe, dealing with the inevitability of sadness that should never be skipped over as a part of life. Mm -hmm. And we tend to kind of like reject those emotions, right? When we're feeling sadness or when we're feeling grief or when we're feeling anger, it's kind of like, you know, this rejection constantly, like, I don't want to feel this because it's uncomfortable. And sometimes we tend either to eat, to drink, to smoke, to any kind of, you know, um, defense mechanism that we could find just not feeling. But at the end, if we can sit down and feel it and acknowledge it and give it the right space, you know, sadness is also part of life and grief is also part of life and missing something or someone or, you know, having melancholy for times that have already passed is also part 
of, of this human experience. And sometimes we tend not to either talk, talk about them. And also I think in our kind of like educational system and in our social media world, everything is also about kind of like, you know, how, how can you be striving for more or be more positive or feel better or, you know, constantly, constantly. And sometimes it's just like, okay, just, you know, we, we just let, we just need to let that be felt. And instead of, you know, um, kind of, instead of avoiding those feelings, I think the point is how can we get better at feeling? How can we feel it more? Right. Even if, if it's sadness or grief. This is the problem of the isolated individual, right? Like for thousands of years, we had communal group processes that brought us through these, these, these moments that are ritualized. Community catharsis, community ecstasy. We would come together, drum, sing, shake, dance, do whatever, and release emotions and then go back to our lives. We don't have that anymore. And so these emotions kind of pile up inside of us and we're pressure cookers and we're not given a safe outlet for them in our world. And then it can take form in all sorts of, as you said, addictions or despair. And there's also a thing here, which is these, these sticky and difficult emotions can breed such learning, mm -hmm. right? Like how many people have you met in your life who had some terminal sickness or who encountered, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of crash and mm -hmm. that crash led to their revival, led to them mm -hmm. turning their life around. Mm -hmm. So I think also as a planetary system, we have to understand that we are right now part of the earth healing herself. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, we need to go and save the world. Like that is so kind of anthropocentric and I think mm -hmm. limited in, in, in its way of thinking. It's not, we're not saving the world. We are the world acting through us, trying to restore and regenerate herself itself. Mm -hmm. um, to realize that you're an actor of a much larger force that is not yours to control that you can just act on behalf of something and be in service to something that's also deeply empowering you know maslow he has his like hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. and actually after self-actualization there's being of service mm -hmm. and that is truly the highest need of the human soul is can i be of service yeah how how can i serve the world how, how can i serve my community how can i serve whatever you believe in higher energy god you know the light however you want to call it yeah Mm, true. You know, when, it comes, when it comes to moving things through our bodies, I don't know if you ever noticed this in animals, but after, for example, if a rabbit is being stalked by a cat, right, and the rabbit kind of like hides or places or freezes, and the cat moves away, the rabbit will like shake for like one minute after its traumatic event to release it, and then it goes along its day. And so I think that when you look at human society as a whole, like we just need a big communal, like, shaking shake and i don't know if you're aware of joanna macy's work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. um yeah and a lot of her work for example the council of all beings i don't know if you've sat in one of those circles no i haven't um i'll explain it briefly because it's actually really beautiful so you're a group of 10 15 whatever people and everyone goes into the land and asks for one of the organisms of the land to well, you say, can I speak on behalf of you? Mm -hmm. And so I might go and become oak tree and you might go and become whale and someone might become the ant. Mm -hmm. We all go back, we make a mask or a thing for our bodies and we dress as that creature and we sit in circle and one by one we take turns speaking with the voice of that being, mm -hmm. right? This is animism, again, yes. like you can embody other creatures. We are other creatures. And so we're in that circle and everyone's sharing, well, you know, as, as a whale, like this is what I'm experiencing and feeling, and this is a grief. And 
and it's it is a community catharsis grief ritual and there are humans in the center and everyone takes turns being with humans and hearing and there's this kind of relief that happens and so it's a beautiful of, a lot of her work and her workshops around the work that reconnects is working with grief but working with grief as we spoke about before once you go from grief you go to seeing and feeling with new eyes and then you of course of course and you, and you need to have that space to release grief because if not you can hold on to grief for many years and we're constantly having grief as so, first of all the only thing that we have for sure is that we're going to die and of course we've all had people around us either animals family members that have passed away right second of all constantly we're having grief because we are growing up we are um, aging if you want to call it like that no and there's you know some grief also sometimes you can wake up in the morning and maybe your back hurts and it's not the same as when you were 15 years old or you had a glass of wine and you're waking up and you're like oh my god I have a terrible headache and something that obviously didn't happen when you were I don't know 21 years old right so we're, we're constantly having grief either for the seasons either for jobs either for our ideas the evolution that we have and we don't integrate grief into our everyday lives and we, and we I remember this Buddhist teaching that they were telling me that if you imagine that I have a glass of water no and I grab it with my hand. So if I am, you know, grasping the glass of water, my hand doesn't serve for anything else, right? I cannot uh, grab my hair. I cannot, you know, do something with a laptop or with a microphone. I cannot, I cannot use it for anything else because I'm grasping it. If I leave it, you know, be, then I can be useful with my hand again. And that's something that I find, you know, interesting about grief. If you, if you let it be without holding on, but if you give the proper space to it, then eventually it fosters and it creates this new um, era or this new stage, you know, for new hope or for new, you know, evolution or for, you know, planting the new seeds of, you know, something new. And something that I also wanted to comment what you said about the importance of um, being in community. For example, back in the day, there's no uh, data so far about uh, postpartum depression. And why? Because it usually had to do a lot with, you know, raising. Um, kids inside a village, inside a community, inside a tribe. So, for example, when you recently become a mom and you give birth, you know, first of all, you had like a lot of, you know, women, no? Um, these kind of like midwives, doulas, no? Um, that were helping you. Then they taught you how to breastfeed. If you needed, uh, you know, to take a nap, you took a nap and then somebody else was breastfeeding your baby or taking care of, of your baby, changing it, or, you know, maybe, you know, just holding him or her for a few, you know, hours while you sleep and then you had other people you know interacting with you and helping you out so it was kind of like a community um, community uh, process and nowadays you have you know new moms in these kind of like unifamiliar you know uh, compounds kind of like in, a, in an apartment in a city for example which they recently became a mom uh, most of the times you know the father goes back to work because maybe at their work they only gave him one week you know of paternity leave let's say no of course, there's different countries and different organizations. Some of them, they've had, I don't know, eight months, six months, which is ideal, and others have one week, and others don't even have, not even a day, no? And then she is, you know, alone by herself, sleep deprived, not being able to take care of herself. And of course, you know, it creates the perfect hormonal um, um, 
a storm, you know, to create a postpartum depression or something that you're like, hold on, when did I arrive to this? And it's, you know, the power of community that we're not integrating in these natural stages. We're, we're, you know, how we've been reproducting ourselves as a species for so long. And it impresses me that nowadays we're not creating enough community for new moms and for the evolution of, you know, human species. Doesn't it sound to you like your description of a new mom is like the description of the earth right now? That the earth used to be held in community and all mm -hmm. of us used to do our rituals and our rites and our fertility, and you know. And now she's just like that mother who's like, just keeps giving birth. Mm -hmm. Obviously the earth is giving birth every minute to us mm -hmm. and everything. And she's alone in a room and mm -hmm. she has her own post postpartum depression of like, mm -hmm. where did all the people go guys? Yes. And so that's why I think that, you know, at this time and age, most of us are called to either be a doula of grief or death or some form of this older system that's passing away. Mm -hmm. um, and you can be a doula of that part of the system. You can also be a doula of the new life that's emerging. And you can sometimes do both of those things. Mm -hmm. Your 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 doula ing is towards Gaia or planet Earth in a way. It's just kind of like that that forgotten mother. And I think also here, you know, I, I'm sometimes shy even speaking here with you on this podcast. Like to use the word her, but like the role of language mm. when we say it, it's not it's not the same in Spanish because I. You have elo ella, and you use that for for creatures in the living world. But in English, mm -hmm. things are its. Mm -hmm. And if you speak about a tree or a river, as in like a he or a she, some people might think you're crazy, or you're like you're not using your English correctly. Mm -hmm. And so there's also this thing that Robin Wall Kimmerer speaks about, which is like the grammar of animism. And it's like, how do we speak about the earth in a way that we really recognize that she's alive? Mm -hmm. And there are these 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 sacred ways of speaking about the land. Same, by the way, like climate change. Like I use it because I have to for work, but climate change doesn't really tell you anything about what's happening. And neither does fighting climate change or like battling. It's just like these war words again. When what we need are like very different kinds of like verbs and words to describe what this moment is. Hmm. language is so important right like the whole storytelling and the context of what we're describing and the use of words actually make a completely different scene in the reflection in the integration of those concepts in the action maybe even even taking action in in those concepts and can you can you give us more examples about uh for example the the role of language in climate for example or, or in the living world, like what other like new languages can we use? So I would, I would advise people take a listen to Paul Hawken, who's done some talks mm -hmm. on this, and I really appreciate it. Um, he was the first person who really got me thinking that these words of like fighting and battling climate change is still coming from an older paradigm that there's something to battle or fight or there's an enemy here, and again, it's this othering, right? It's this othering of oh and. There's, there's a word, um, a phrase, it's called a, a um, receding baseline syndrome, which is basically when when you're born, you know the world as it is, and you can like look in images or videos, but you don't really know what the world was before you were born, so there's less insects in the air. You don't know that. Receding baseline, there's no insects. Oh, a fourth-growth forest, that's a forest. Mm -hmm. There's no old-growth forest for you to go to. There's no old growth. And I think that when we speak about... Um, this receding baseline syndrome for new generations, they're going to be born and all that they're going to see about the climate is doom and gloom and despair. And that 
nature is an enemy nature isn't a friend that it's you know something to put walls against because the ties are rising that it's some kind of massive fire and we'll use language to fight this thing that's not to be fought so and again this language of saving the world i think is misplaced and in the work that i do in some of the investing i am really actively trying to find new language for investing in natural capital like Mm-hmm. These are living beings, right? These are living relationships. There's a natural capital. Same for ecosystem services. Oh, great. Like, yes, they're offering us services. Thank you, service provider, a.k.a. sacred soul that I depend upon for life. <laughs> so I think whenever we're speaking about the living world, like really like perking up our ears and being like, oh, what, what words am I using here? Because words create energy, they create actions, they create mindsets. Um, even the word nature is very tricky, and I wrote an article about this because nature is a million things, and humans are nature, and every single thing that we see is na- nature in some form. And I think that when we when we flatten it, when we just say like, oh, like nature is like a tree or a forest, and there's actually really interesting etymology for nature um, in Latin, where nature is the source of life. It's this, these essential qualities, the innate disposition of a thing. Like, when you look back at the old words of things, there is so much more meaning to them than what we ascribe. Like the word weird. Do you know what the root of the word weird is? No. What, means, what is it? Today, today you think it's like, oh, like that kind of weirdo or that strange person. Mm-hmm. It means to be able to manifest your own destiny. Mm, I got no idea about that. <laughs> right? No, it's fascinating. Like, and I could go on, I love etymology, but like looking at the roots of the words that we use and hatching ourselves and our friends when we're like, hey, can we talk about that tree like she or he, or can we use a different language to speak about like the climate crisis, you know? So I think that that kind of languaging is incredibly important. Mm. turn people off and you have three people go into your podcast because oh we're going to talk about like doom you know despair and gloom again yes and you know we, we we don't want to have those conversations it feels uncomfortable and that's why people are kind of like constantly avoiding it no another important topic that i want to discuss about alexa is the role of human beings in restoring life Hmm. Like what is like the importance and the actions that we can take in restoring life Yeah, so I don't know about you. I've had moments in my life where I've been like, oh, human beings like absolutely suck. Like, get away from civilization. I'd rather be with the spirits. (laughs) However, however, that is on like a very bad day. In general, you know this phrase that you've probably heard? um, Like, oh, humans don't need the, like, nature doesn't need us, but we need nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a really stupid phrase Mm -hmm. because, first of all, we are nature. But secondly, because. When you look throughout history, and even right now, there is something that human beings do exceptionally well that I have, from what I've seen and from what I know, very, very, very few species do. And every species has its role. And I really, truly believe that human beings have a role, and it's it's a beautiful one. And it's, it's our ability to kind of, wit- it's our ability to witness beauty. Hmm. to be witnesses of consciousness itself. If you look at when you're beholding a sunset, holding your child, or when you're watching a wave crash, or when you're feeling the deliciousness of the way the wind stroking your face, you are very consciously imbibing, drinking beauty, and you are experiencing that beauty, and hopefully you then create art or beauty from that. 
Mm-hmm. So when you think of dance, song, God music, learning, like mm-hmm. adding biodiversity to the land, human beings have a very exceptional quality of being able to witness beauty consciously and reflect beauty back to itself it's like the world seeing itself yeah. in our eyes and it's like a whole of mirrors where that recognition continues of course and also creating beauty right not only seeing beauty but exactly. things also create beauty mm-hmm. and and some creatures do like it's really beautiful some birds like they make these very elaborate nests or underground patterns underwater patterns in the sand um but when you look at certain um, landscapes that have been farmed over time by human beings, whether it's in the Amazon or um, fire management ecosystems, so in places like California, mm-hmm. indigenous farming techniques have actually enhanced the biodiversity in the land to levels that would not have been possible without human touch. Mm-hmm. So in the Amazon, we farmed, humans farmed terra preta, like dark mm-hmm. soils, over a lot of time, and we see these massive receptacles of dark soils that are incredibly fertile in the middle of the Amazon, which we think is like a wilderness. No, it's a highly, highly productive and intentional food forest. Mm-hmm. Or in California, when, when the fire clears out the underbrush, berries and nuts and all other things can grow. And so mm-hmm. I think that the role of the human being is to witness beauty, create more of it, and add to that beauty in the form of either art or biodiversity or farming or something of the sort, mm-hmm. or our own creativity. And, and not a lot of creatures farm like we do, like termites farm. And but but there is a unique way that human beings witness and create that I think the Earth wants. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we're wanted. Yes, <laughs> we're wanted when we're not killing right other species or we're not killing our surroundings. No? And, and what you said about you know if, if uh, nature, well, th- that some people say that nature doesn't need us, but we need nature. I think that at some point, you know, human beings have the ability, you know, to create or to destroy, right? And right now that we're seeing that we're destroying our environment, then we can you know question: Are we conscious enough? Are, are we really this species that is conscious that is kind of like harming its own habitat, its own home? its own space no? and I was reading this um, book called The Aesthetic Brain it was fascinating because it said about these new areas that they found that scientists have found uh, inside human brain that that they haven't seen it in any other animals around and this you know this access for example when um, when they're you know studying you know the brain of you know people and they have this slideshow of different things that evoke beauty and evoke this aesthetic emotion which are the emotions that are you know triggered by beauty there are different parts of the brain that get lit up that they haven't seen in any other animal and also something interesting then you know we started a different debate about well then what is beauty and why some things might you know some people might find it beautiful and others don't right or you know especially you know about you know um, mating for example there's this book called the survival of the prettiest by nancy atkoff and she describes the whole um you know attractiveness and aesthetic that we have you know since like many 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 years ago since we were nomads about beauty and the funny thing about what states in this book is that beauty actually is something that's telling obviously reproductive um you know fitness in a sense and health no? So we're using beauty to communicate in different cues.
leaves. And the same thing, for example, if you watch at a forest that it's, you know, blooming and growing and it's all green and it's, you know, you find it, you know, very aesthetically pleasant and it's indicating you that the, that the forest is healthy, right? When you've seen a forest that's not healthy, you, you can have a different kind of beauty, kind of like a decay beauty, of course, but, you know, you can see that the forest is not thriving. So also beauty is a way of communicating with, with us the health that something has. You can see a new, a new apple, you know, and it's beauty and, and it's shining and it's, you know, red and it's beautiful and you know that it's ready. No, if you if you see an apple that has fallen a week ago and it's you know getting rotten, then eventually it will communicate you that because it's not that beautiful, then it might not be healthy for you. So we are in constant communication with our ecology, with our sense, using a compass called beauty. I I love that frame, and I would love to see that frame be used for things that are wild and messy and feral. Mm -hmm and kind of gory and you know can we watch a fox kill some small creature and see the blood everywhere and can we find that beautiful can we find the wildness beautiful and i mm. think that we need to this is part of the whole rewilding conversation i think we need to become exceptionally comfortable with things that might be terrifying or intimidating or unesthetically pleasing to a very domesticated human mm -hmm. and yet there is such a fundamental part of life that we can only look at it and be like all right i know that's like incredibly weird but i find that beautiful mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know the rot the underworld like all of these more like chthonic deep yin sort of twisted convoluted things can we still find those beautiful and when you look at mm -hmm. a lot of old myths um, they have very interesting stories to share about just what we are, a what we have the capacity to develop in ourselves to mm -hmm. witness as beauty. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think, yes, we can have that. For example, there are these cenotes over in the Riviera Maya. And, um, and it's Cenote Angelita, and you have the pit. Cenote Angelita, it's actually, it looks kind of like this cenote that's like decayed, that it has kind of like, you know, uh, dead trees underneath it. It also happens to have kind of like this river of sulfur. So it actually creates this decadent scene. And they actually call Cenote Angelita, they call the hell. And the pit, you know, the other cenote is like this, you know, a very big circle that has this shining light inside of you. And you go in circles all the way up and they call it the heaven. And if you go to both cenotes, one is hell and one is heaven. Well, that's kind of like the common name, no? you can connect with that kind of beauty. But something really important is that each kind of beauty is going to evoke a different reflection on you. Yeah. And that conversation, that connection with beauty that you can reflect, that it can help you think, that it can communicate specific things and make you ponder, I think it's like so impressive. And that's why, because there's many benefits of using nature in our everyday lives, but also nature helps us, you know, um, connect and it helps us reflect, right? How many things have we seen around that we've used biomimicry, you know, like the, the, the design that we've seen in nature and we've replicated either for businesses for companies for you know different strategies at home even even for architecture for building we've used so many of nature's knowledge in our everyday lives and sometimes you know we're still 
we can think that we're not that connected but in the end if we you know kind of like take the one of the first phrases that you said about understanding the depth that we can have in our everyday lives with that connection with nature we can see the real impact that nature is having every single minute of our life that's the other thing with climate change it's not like that the air is like you know this climate is something out there it's right now in your nostrils mm -hmm. it are it's all the elements flowing in your blood mm -hmm. it's your body is literally that nature mm -hmm. right and so it's 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 absolutely inescapable <laughs> totally totally yeah. i want to ask you you know, thinking as living systems, how can we design our life and work around these natural principles? How, how can we add more nature in our lives? Because we all know the benefits. You spoke about one of the things, which is thinking in seasons. Mm. Truly, truly honoring the season that you are in, the season that your organization might be in, making a lot of space and whatever form of acknowledgement that that's where you are. Mm -hmm. um you know there's a few um there's a lot of corporate like trip like uh what are tricks and gadgets of ways to like you know think regeneratively as a business leader all these things and actually more and more there's a lot of value in that but i i start to see a little bit more as window dressing it's like yes for example bringing nature into our lives we can be more adaptive and responsive because mm -hmm. we live in a complex system and complexity and it's chaotic you cannot you know you cannot plan and have very specific outcomes mm -hmm. so you can be adaptive you can be responsive you can be regenerative i find that these words are only useful when we're doing them physically in our day-to-day -day life and there's mm -hmm. some kind of um embodied way that we're applying them um mm -hmm. so for example when you're like regeneration, it's a word we hear everywhere, regenerative business, you know, let's be a living system, let's be regenerative. The definition of regenerative that I abide by, which is the one that I was taught in my, in my regenerative practitioner course, is something that unleashes the latent potential of a much larger system. Can your company, can your presence, can your intervention unleash this dormant, sleeping potential of some larger whole? So it's not just for yourself. And when I see that word regenerative being used for business or for finance, it's basically like sustainability 2.0 with some pretty things. But they're not fundamentally unleashing the latent potential of some larger system and at service of a whole. For me, the, the greatest um, thinking like living systems inspiration that I experience is everything that has to do with decentralized decision-making. Mm -hmm. How does nature think? How does she delegate all these different roles, these different entities? How do they work together in harmony? How are you a leader one day and then the next day you take the sideline and you're sort of moving and responding to the needs that are there and seeing that everything's constantly shifting uh, versus mm -hmm. a very command control kind of hierarchy. Yes. And you've probably come across theory of you, right? Which is mm -hmm. this whole um, thing that was developed by Otto Sharma and Peter Senge, which is whole like withholding what you believe what you think is true letting go of everything that you think is right being in liminality and unknowingness mm -hmm. merging back up into some kind of action mm -hmm. and that mimics winter it mimics autumn okay mm -hmm. the leaves are falling everything's quiet you don't know what's there and then it emerges again mm -hmm. and and you know, there's obviously a ton more examples but thinking in living systems you can only do it if you have a connection with nature 
I don't mm. think reading any amount of books or attending webinars or workshops can just spend a week in the forest and understand how those different organisms are relating. Try and find some wisdom there and then bring that home. Mm -hmm. to your everyday life yeah. yes and something uh, really important that you mentioned was about the hierarchy right sometimes you know, i think that hierarchy has to do with this mind man-made uh, structure right we have a lot of hierarchy in religion institutions right you have either a priest a rabbi you know the pope or like you know different you know these always kind of like male figures no of you know hierarchy and it was completely man-made if you you know switch to spirit Spirituality, for example, if you've done, I don't know, psychedelic plants or anything like that, it's not about hierarchy. It's about being of service, right? Being of service either to the plant or being of service, you know, of the consciousness. And it happens exactly the same thing, for example, in companies, in business, right? Some of them, most of them, I'm not going to say all of them because there exist, you know, organizations that work more, I guess, like cooperative, no? Kind of like this uh, Japanese company called Team Lab that they create amazing art. But, you know, other companies are very hierarchical. So it's something completely man-made and something kind of like, uh, you know, patriarchy kind of like man-made. And if you observe nature, there's not a kind of like a fixed hierarchy. Of course, you have kind of like, you know, the leader of the, of the group and sometimes they fight for that, right? But it's cyclical. It's not the leader of the group is not constantly the leader of the group, you know? Maybe it could be a year and then it fights for its, for its place again and then sometimes he's like the second best or sometimes he's kind of like the facilitator or, or in charge of something around, you know, the gang around it, right? But it's not as, you know, that hierarchy like so strongly stated it's more it's more organic and it's more in flow and it's more changing than other hierarchies that we've seen around what can you comment on that <laughs> when he described like that there's no like hierarchy like or so you know one time he's a facilitator i imagine like a like a, a wolf on a podium like facilitating like a group discussion amongst like his pack. <laughs> it was a very funny image yeah i think that one of the best metaphors well not metaphors one of the best teachers for this um are the mycelium you know? mm -hmm. these fascinating complex very unknown visible underground structures that sprout as different mushrooms and spores and fungi mm -hmm. but those are just a, 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 essentially a sexual organ a if an expression of this much kind of more distributed form of intelligence and when you're speaking about flowers earlier what I love in Merlin Sheldrake's new book, Entangled Life, is he really speaks about this kind of mycocentric perspective mm -hmm. where like 90% of plants are being farmed by fungi. And what you're mm -hmm. seeing above the ground and these beautiful flowers, you know, if you kind of flip it on its head and put on a little imagination hat, it's like these flowers are the fungi trying to feed and replicate themselves. And, mm -hmm. and the flowers are just like they're uh you know kind of doing the bidding doing their bidding in a way because they're like we're not going to exchange with you mm -hmm. allow you to live if you don't give us whatever's happening above ground um so i totally. think also very interesting uh um being to spend time with are the mycelium and the fungi mm. understanding how they work and kind of you know when you go into the land introduce yourself speak like say hi you know 
I'm Marion. I'm here to meet you and learn from you and your, your you know, your fungal ways. Can I spend some time with you? And it sounds kind of wacky, but it, it does create that intimacy. Of course. These, these, are, these are teachers, I think, when it comes to what you're speaking about hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And the amount of information that they can transfer, right? There's no hierarchy between them and they are really like cooperative systems because what ha what's happening to one tree, they have the ability to transfer that information to other trees around, you know, by this mycelium network so then other trees know for example oh over there it might you know a tree might be getting sick or we are having you know i don't know something that's endangering us so let's grow on this side and they're co constantly cooperating between themselves constantly you know to um to ensure kind of like the the uh, survival of the forest of those organisms right but it's 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 more about cooperation and less about competition and sometimes, you know, hierarchy is a lot about competition. And maybe we have, we have both. We have that duality constantly with us. Yeah, and that would lead us down a whole separate strain of conversation about an educational system that doesn't have an A student or a number one in a class mm -hmm. or how we solve problems together. Mm -hmm. Even Joseph Campbell, and I, I love his work, but you know, this idea of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. There's one individual that goes into the underworld and gets the treasure and this kind of idolization of a singular individual to lead the world out of chaos, mm -hmm. I think is a, is a dangerous myth. It's a dangerous communities. Like Jesus had his posse, had all his disciples. Yes. You know, he was also a very naturalist. When you read the old gospels, they mm -hmm. were very vegetative stories. All his metaphors are nature metaphors. Mm -hmm. He also was in relationship with other beings that gave him lessons. So there's this, is, and it goes back to the piece of paper and the interbeing, like, no one is ever, even if they believe it, acting alone. Mm -hmm. So can we create a story about a collective myth where we collectively bring ourselves somewhere new and it's not just an individual hero, which truly doesn't exist? Of course. And when you have that sense of that, you know, hero, it's kind of like shifting the responsibility of, you know, everything is the responsibility of that hero. And it kind of like in a sense, and I'm quoting, kind of like liberates you from that responsibility. And at the end, we're not going to get far if we continue, you know, giving responsibility of our life, of our planet, of, you know, our living systems to someone else. Instead, we need to take that responsibility constantly and, you know, starting right now. And for example, what can you say about what things and actions can we start doing right now to take that responsibility? I'd say become clear on what it is that you love. Mm -hmm. And that is a challenge. You know, mm -hmm. it's not always clear. We can we have been told throughout our lives what we should love or what we could care about. Truly find out what it is that you love. Make that the center of your world and build a world around it and work towards it. So for someone that could look like clean energy, for someone it could look like creating gardens across all of your different community and you're all, you're creating a small local food system mm -hmm. some people it could look like becoming an artist or becoming more of an artist mm -hmm. for most people i hope it looks like spending time in the land and listening to the things mm -hmm. that are out there or in there um but coming from that place of love and knowing that you're working with a material that you're in devotion to Mm -hmm. That is the, the place to start and everything emerges from that. Mm -hmm. And so begin with an inquiry about what is it that I care so much about? What is it that I can really spend time on? Mm -hmm. 
yeah what is it where i can you know feel connected or foster more connections right is that nature is that you know things that you love or things that you feel that flow with right there's you know there's a lot of practical advice i could give like yeah go to these schools take these courses read these books i refrain because i think it's such an individual journey and mm -hmm. only when someone has a clear image of what might be their little unique essence to bring into the world just like every single creature has a unique essence to bring what is your unique essence mm -hmm. and then work from that mm -hmm. and i would almost refrain from from too prescriptive advice right now because mm -hmm that fuente, that um, source of energy that's going to come from working on something you love will be what sustains you and helps mm -hmm. you move through the grief mm -hmm. and the sadness and the trickiness and the despair. Mm -hmm. Of course. And, and find, I, the others. find the others. <laughs> yes. Critical. yes. <laughs> right? Like, yes. I know what you love, find the others and mm -hmm. just start like experimenting and doing it. Mm, I love that. And something that we get a lot, a lot of questions is, you know, people finding their passion, their essence, their life's mission there, you know, we get that constantly. So I want to ask you, how did you find your essence? How was your journey? Hmm. If, you, if you feel comfortable sharing, of course. Oh no, of course. It's just, it's such a, it's such a large question. It's kind of like an onion, right? It's kind of like, you know, you go by stages constantly until at some point you know that you've reached it. I keep finding it. I, I don't feel like I ever fully know it. And the more that I try and feel what my essence is, the more it kind of dissolves and becomes the whole. I mm -hmm. know that that might sound a little bit nebulous and, and maybe cheesy, but it's true. I... The more work that I do with the land, the more work that I do with other creatures and humans, the more I see myself in everything. Mm -hmm. um, and my essence is that of this home planet, really, truly. Um, and how I got to that feeling was a mixture of spending a lot of time alone outdoors, um, lots of time with teachers and books and songs and stories. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and very simply being receptive. I think mm. the moment that you just say, I'm here, I'm completely open to whatever. And that might be super scary. Um, but I'm really open to just being filled with something. I don't know what it is yet. Um, th those were always the moments for me that pointed me in, in directions that were that were incredibly generative. Mm. And also like trusting that you have the resources to, to go through that, right? Even if it would be something painful or something scary or something, whatever, trusting that you have those resources to get you through it. Yeah, I think the more that you can understand your interconnections with all of life, the more that you feel resourced mm -hmm. to undertake anything. Mm -hmm. so you can trust that you're held by that web. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Alexa. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge, your wisdom, your experience, your life story with us. And I would like to close by asking you a few questions. Ideally, would be to answer in one or a few words, but just kind of like try to keep it short, right? Um, what is art for you? I think that art is something that makes you touch the infinite or that brings you fully out of yourself and into the world. 
It could be a little bit of ice. It could be, but it just brings you out of yourself and into mm. the world. Mm, I love that. Who's your favorite author? Impossible to answer. <laughs> Can't do it. I think I've quoted like 10 authors in the course of this, this podcast. Um, no, no, truly, truly. I think that is way too difficult to answer. Um, one, all the ones I've mentioned have been favorite mm. authors, Robin Wilkimmer, David Abram, and Robert Bringhurst, et cetera, Merlin Sheldrake. But I would, um, I, his, his latest book I like. Um, Khalil Gibran has a beautiful mm -hmm. book called The Prophet. Mm -hmm. And he just has other forms of poetry that I think are divine. Mm -hmm. um, so less of an author, more of a mini Bible or mm -hmm. spiritual uh, Bible that I carry with me. Mm, I love that. Yeah. An, advice, an advice that changed your life? <sighs> Let go. <laughs> Yes, very good advice. What you said. <laughs> the best quality in humans? Hmm. The ability to see beauty and keep creating it. A book that you recommend? Hmm. There's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wilkimer. And the reason I suggest that book in the context of this conversation is that it blends poetry and indigenous knowledge with science. And it shows that those two things can complement each other. Mm. That we can reach new synthesis and they're not at odds. So that's mm. a book I would recommend in the context of this conversation. I love that. What feeds your soul? Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate and just, yeah. just, just some trees and squirrels swaying in front of me. That's good. Yeah. And laughter. Mm -hmm. The most pressing issue for humanity. Our disconnections from our own souls. <laughs> If humans can agree on this, you will be very happy. Hmm. I want to say we are nature, but it sounds too simplistic. Mm. something like yeah no we are nature oh yeah <laughs> we are <laughs> um, what would you like to scream to the whole world mm. vamos <laughs> let's do it <laughs> something that you expect the joy in 2022 can I also add I love you I would want to say that to the whole <laughs> yes yes of course you can add it <laughs> Appreciate that addition. <laughs> Something that you expect with joy in 2022? Mm. Spending time with you soon, hopefully in Mexico. Um, launching a podcast that speaks about a lot of this kind of stuff. I'm very excited for that. And seeing what ingenious ideas people keep coming up with on behalf of our planet. Mm. I love it. And the last one, what is it that you have lived and that no one could miss experiencing it? Hmm. Spending a night outdoors completely alone, preferably somewhere away from cars and lights. Hmm. Getting connected to you, right? To the purest essence of you. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah and you know scary things happen and that's also really important <laughs> yes how you, how, do you, how you deal with that right <laughs> uh-huh, exactly <laughs> like, a little dose of humility to get you through the day yes sometimes very needed <laughs> right <laughs> and at the end if you made it you have kind of like these new uh security kind of like this confidence that gives you freedom right that you can spend time alone you're like ah I made it through the dark night. Exactly. I can do whatever you need me to do. Of course. Amazing, Alexa. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time, for your wisdom, for your essence, for sharing your your passions and for sharing so much knowledge with us. It was a pleasure to have you here in one podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? Luan, the world's first emotional museum, Design a global online experience to inspire and explore. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, and visit our site at luanmuseum.com to engage creatively.